On October 7th, Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Barcera said that the use of marching rights to control the pricing of medicines was not, quote, off the table, unquote. This comment lit a firestorm in the U.S. biopharma sector in Washington, D.C. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and in this Vital Health podcast, I'm speaking to Patrick Kilbride, the director of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Innovation Policy Center about marching rights and the role of high-value intellectual property to the U.S. biopharma ecosystem. Patrick, it's always great to see you. How are you doing, sir? Doing great. Great to see you, too. Welcome back. One of the things I want to start off with is this comment from Secretary Bassara, marching rights. Why did this comment generate so much heat, and what does it mean practically? We should call this uh, podcast Deja Vu all over again, yeah, no because kidding. you know we come back to this uh, question of marching rights again and again and again, right? It's the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to see it in, in context, right? Marching rights is one potential avenue to erode the proprietary rights of innovators, along with a host of other attacks on on, the, on those rights that we're seeing across patent policy, price controls, uh, you know, multilateral challenges like the TRIPS waiver. I know we'll get to all of these. Sure. And marching rights is one of the ways in which patent rights are coming under attack. Why is it happening? It, simply political pressure. You know, we, we've all seen how the innovative biopharmaceutical industry has been stigmatized now. I mean, for many years, this is not a new thing, but it's really escalated in a in a very dangerous way in recent years, and uh, because of the you know sort of the populist political trends that have become entrenched in the United States, uh, unfortunately on, bo- on both sides of the political aisle, uh, as well as overseas, we're, we're only seeing more and more of this. And marching rights are a provision within the Buy Dole legislation, and that's Barch Buy and, and Bob Dole, who well-known presidential candidate and well-respected on both sides of the aisle. And it goes back to 1980. That's 43 years ago. The provisions were intended, and obviously, I mean, I want you to comment on this, but the provisions of Marchin were there to exploit patents, to make sure patents that were developed by universities are actually not just sitting there fallow, that they can't be sort of poached in rent-seeking behavior, but they were actually, the government could come in and make sure they were utilized. That was the spirit, right? Oh, exactly. The spirit of Marchin rights is the spirit of Bidol, ensuring that discoveries made with federal-funded research results in commercialization, new technologies, new products, new services like mRNA vaccines in a a pandemic actually come to the world and and serve greater societal goods. And marching rights were specifically intended very narrowly for the case where the licensee of of a patent right did not follow through, did not commercialize the technology to be able to to make sure that someone else would commercialize the technology. And they also expressly prohibited their use for price controls. And Elizabeth Warren, in April of this year, along with Secretary Becerra's comment, Elizabeth Warren wrote a public letter to the secretary stating that marching rights are, and I'm going to quote, a powerful general purpose tool to target excessive pricing, already that's quite loaded language there, while the Bayh-Dole Act is particularly helpful for patents that receive government research support. So we're already in this letter sort of framing this that the intention was price controls 
in the context of government support. So there's sort of two aspects to this. One, that it's the government that's more important in this discovery. And two, that price controls was the intention. Are either of those assertions correct? Both are wrong for, for varying <laughs> reasons, right? Uh, and, and, you know, it, interestingly, as we speak, Senator Warren has written another letter to Secretary Becerra. So this really is deja vu all over no again, kidding. right? This week, there's a new, a new letter to Secretary Becerra. I'm sure she's completely changed her mind. Right? Right. When I say urging the secretary to uh, use marching rights, it's, it's much stronger than that, as you can imagine. It's, it's more uh, akin with coercion. Why is this notion wrongheaded? Well, first of all, where does federal funds come in in terms of the commercialization of new technologies? It's part of an ecosystem. It's a very important part of the ecosystem. And when we talk about federally funded research, you know, number one, we want more of it, right? We want the government to, to devote funds to early stage scientific research because it's the kind that, that companies can't do. It's, it's too fundamental. It's, it's more knowledge advancement than, say, directly technology advancement in many cases, although it becomes technological development and advancement. It's the art of knowledge transfer. And government investment in that is, is a role that few others could fill. It also gives government an opportunity to set the direction for technological leadership in the United States. So by investing in, in different kinds of research with different expertise uh, across the country, the government's able to set priorities to say, we need more of this or that. You know, when you're looking at problems like climate change or rare diseases or, you know, energy shortfalls, Here's an opportunity for government to set the table to prime the pump and, and direct those research energies in different directions. Now, while that is critically important, it's only the, a small piece of the, of the puzzle, right? What happens after that? When there are uh, useful discoveries that are made, we've seen that the United States is better than just about anybody else in the world at turning knowledge advancements, knowledge discoveries into usable uh, technologies, usable products and services. And that's because of the economic framework that surrounds that ecosystem. It's, it's the strong rule of law environment. It's the strong uh, respect for property rights and contracts that enables us to do business together, right? So governments contracting with universities, contracting with startups, contracting with venture capital and companies large and small to advance a technology, a new product service through the life cycle of innovation across that valley of death between pure knowledge and, and pure technology where so many others fail and realizing, as we did with uh, these mRNA vaccines and so many other breakthrough technologies, the product that can deliver on climate change, deliver on food production, deliver on uh, life-saving vaccines and therapies. And there's been numerous studies, in particular the one we just did, which was an update of the Robert Neller study. We looked at a cohort of 10 years, sort of 2010 to 2020. Robert Neller looked at 2000 to 2010 to look at where these assets originated. There's a couple interesting things about that ecosystem. The first thing is, while basic research is certainly done at the NIH, new technologies, new platforms, what we find is specific assets, specific originators. Over half of the drugs that were approved by FDA came from small companies. In fact, 102 of 252 came from small companies, and, and roughly 91 
came from big companies. So both of those originate a lot of those assets. About 10% come directly from the NIH through some sort of Bayh-Dole association and a patent. The fact that so many of these assets, the majority, in fact, that were approved by FDA and originated in America, came from small companies with less than half a billion in revenue. That's you know roughly 55% of the cohort that was approved and originated in the United States. Why are we getting so far apart from the reality versus rhetoric here? Why are we so divorced from how this actually works? There's been this narrative that government funds science. Um, Which they do. Absolutely, the NIH does. They do, and, and, it's, and it's very important. And, and we don't in any way want to diminish the importance of government investment in, in scientific research. But it's important that we also look in the broader context. And to your point, you know, you see the percentage of drugs that originate in the private sector, whether small biotech startups or larger companies versus in, you know, government-funded research labs or universities. And, you know, you can say both are important, but clearly the scale is, is bigger on the private sector side. Similarly, in the amount of dollars invested, huge. the private sector investment dwarfs the, the public sector investment, but they're different, right? They're, they're taking place uh, often at different stages in the, in the innovation life cycle and the knowledge uh, advancement and knowledge transfer life cycle. So you don't want to say one is more important than the other, but you should, we should continue to point out that the private sector scale and scope is much bigger than than the public sector contribution, both critical, but not necessarily comparable. It's this idea that without the private sector, you're going to be able to pivot to the public sector and get assets that concerns us greatly, because we just don't see that in the data, certainly not in the Neller update we just did. Again, thank you for your support on that. But it also goes to the, the peer review study we recently released in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science, where we looked at 23,000 NIH grants from the year 2000. And we found that those 23,000 grants were related to 8,000 patents that led to 41 drugs that entered clinical trials. And if a drug did not receive any public funding, the statistical probability of that asset only going with public funding was zero. It would not come to market. Whereas when we saw over 90% of the funding mix coming from the private sector, there was a 60% probability that that asset would be approved by the FDA. So overwhelmingly, what we found was there requires an enormous input from the private sector in order to get this stuff over the finish line. And without it, it doesn't happen. From the standpoint of you know the Global Innovation Policy Center, what is the appropriate role for NIH versus the private sector? What do we need to do to make sure that we're not blurring those lines? To me, the very important role that NIH and other government funders of research play is in providing direction, setting priorities, priming the pump, and helping to build that nationwide research capacity, you know, encouraging people to continue to invest in themselves. I mean, let's face it, technology transfer, knowledge transfer begins in schools. You know, NIH plays a, a critical role, I think, in bringing people into the workforce, scientific areas, including biotechnology, and they can often help to ensure that unmet needs are seeing some research funding. What I thought the takeaway from the Neller study uh, in, in your update was that the government can play a very important role, but it's the private sector that plays the indispensable role. Without the private sector, stuff just doesn't come to Exactly. Market. And we've seen no indication whatsoever from any government in the world 
that there is a political willingness to invest in research at the scale that the private sector does. The assumption in in all of these policy debates about how terrible patents are is that (laughs) without the private sector, the the government could fill this uh, research and development and commercialization role. We've seen zero indication that that's the case. And it's not just a question of money, right? It's a question of accountability. When you're in the private sector, you're accountable to a bottom line. You have to make something work, not just technologically, but commercially. You have to be able to do it in a sustainable fashion where it's self-continuing. Whereas politics, you know, you might prioritize something one day, the next year it's out of fashion. And we've seen too often how fickle that political investment can be. On the private sector side, there's accountability to shareholders, accountability to the bottom line. And so it tends to be a much more disciplined and rigorous process that actually gets to results. To that point, something that just occurred in Europe, the European Parliament think tank that they run, they just published a series of recommendations that say that they should start basically a publicly funded drug discovery organization to more efficiently produce drugs at a cheaper cost. I find that laughably naive and also in many ways terrifying as someone who lives in Europe but is a European taxpayer. That just seems rife with failure to me. It just seems like, you know, a wish list instead of you know, realism. It, it's it's living in Candyland to say, why don't we just do this ourselves? Everybody would like to think they could do this, but the fact is it requires resources at, at an enormous scale. And it requires, uh, you know, a financial system that's willing to take risks associated with those resources. We've just seen no indication that the public sector is capable or, or willing to do that. If a drug fails 90% of the time and it, the average cost is $2 billion, and again, there's much debate about that, but if we can use that as a, that's sort of a mean point where people sort sure. of sit. What is the political reality of someone wasting $2 billion 90% of the time on failure? I mean, how long is your political career going to last? Gets to the question that ultimately is behind all of this conversation about price controls. Right. If you're in the business of high-risk, high-capital innovation, you're looking across your entire pipeline and saying, I need to make a profit on the pipeline. And if 9 out of 10 drugs fail, the one that's successful has to be able to pay for the pipeline. When, you know, policymakers like, you know, Senator Warren or, or Secretary Becerra look at the price of an individual drug and say, how can the cost of manufacturing, which is the most ridiculous, but even the cost of innovating this one particular drug be associated with the price tag that you're asking? You have to say, well, step back. As an innovator, you're looking not just at the, what it costs you to innovate this one drug. You're trying to amortize the costs of your entire pipeline. That is entirely appropriate, but it's also entirely lost in this debate. When Hemingway wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls, his contract was not negotiated on the production cost per page of every single book. I mean, it's a ridiculous assertion and a bizarre way to value intellectual property. I mean, the value of intellectual property is what the market values it as, one would think. Exactly. You know, innovators are often manufacturers, but they are not pricing the cost of producing a dose of a drug. They're pricing the cost of innovating a pipeline to isolate one particular medicine at one particular moment in time and say this price is too high or too low is absurd without the broader context. So medicines in the United States account for 12 to 14% of overall healthcare costs. And that's been very consistent over, over decades, right? So does anybody think that 12 to 14% of 
overall health care costs is exorbitant given the relative scale of therapeutic benefit that is derived by patients from medicines versus virtually every other medical treatment or care. Medicines provide an outsized role in keeping us all healthy and thriving, and yet they account for a relatively small percentage of the overall cost. That is lost because the way that individuals pay for medicines is much different than how we pay for other care. Yeah. And I spoke to Richard Evans, the well-known analyst, and he said, we spend a lot of healthcare in general. So that's 13% of a larger amount. And, and, you know, 90% of the medicines that we use are generic. They do cost less, but there is that cutting edge of medicines that are brand new that have cost a lot of money to innovate, bring to market. And those prices are always going to be the leading edge. I think it's important that we take that out and look at it and understand it and not try to brush the whole picture with that framework of all medicines are, are expensive. It's just not true. I also spoke recently to Amitabh Chandra from Harvard, and he pointed out, look, to Savaldi, that's going to be generic in 18 months. And then it's basically free. Even if you're an alien on Mars and you get hepatitis C, you will probably use Savaldi in a generic version. No one's going to try and beat that drug. You're not going to be able to beat 99% effectiveness. It's easy to make medicines cheap. You just stop making new ones. <laughs> you know, right? And then we all have a lot of cheap medicine, but we don't have the, new innovative the cures to the problems that we still have. What do you think will happen if... Secretary Bassara, Elizabeth Warren, if they get their way and they actually march in on a couple of these drugs they're talking about, what happened? If they take that step, they'll be challenged in court and it's inconceivable that a judge wouldn't find that they violated the basic tenet of the Bayh-Dole statute. And if it sticks, the big losers potentially are the universities because no company is going to license through the NIH. Yeah, exactly. Then the uh, the role of government and universities in that broader ecosystem that we talked about is, is diminished and we're all poorer as a result. On June 17th, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, supported U.S. trade and agreed to waivers related to the mRNA intellectual property for the COVID vaccine. Basically, now any country or state actor can utilize the COVID-19 patent technology without actually having to negotiate with the patent holders. It's essentially free and public within the WTO organization. Our first concern, of course, is the continued investment and viability of the vaccines that we need right now. U.S. citizens over 65 are vaccinated at a very low rate, or at 40%. In China, very few seniors have had any boosters at all if they've been vaccinated. So there's still a huge need for mRNA vaccines. And, you know, as we've seen the evolution of this virus, we know that we need to keep up with the changes. The WTO waiver, by allowing countries to override the patent rights of innovators, really puts a disincentive on those companies to continue to invest. So that's an enormous problem. More broadly, what happened with the June decision at the WTO was that they agreed that intellectual property could be an obstacle, when in fact, we know that it is an enabler of innovation. They've stigmatized it as an obstacle to access to innovation. And that's a tragedy. It's become clear to me, uh, and I think we've talked a little bit about this before, Dwayne, that in its implementation, way back in 1995, the WTO TRIPS agreement was agreed to by a lot of the original member countries of the WTO, not as an investment in their own knowledge economy infrastructure, which is how it should have been viewed. It was a concession 
to developed countries that wanted better IP protection in return for access to those wealthy markets and over time reductions in agricultural subsidies that the developing world viewed as an unfair competition. What's happened since then is that countries that acceded to the WTO agreed to the TRIPS commitments, the IP commitments, have never really fully and faithfully implemented them. And we actually studied this at the chamber um, a few years back in our international IP index. We asked the researcher to look at all of the steps that a country would need to take to implement the TRIPS agreement, and then give that a score against our overall IP standard. You know, what does a really strong IP system look like? Well, the TRIPS commitments by themselves only scored about half of the available scores. So showing that by itself it was a fairly low standard, which the WTO says, the TRIPS agreement itself says this is a minimum standard. Right. Countries can go above it, they can't go below it. In fact, we found that the innovative countries in the world, the ones who have the most output, the most job creation and knowledge intensive industries, the best access to new technologies, they all score much higher. Right. So what does this tell us? If you want to be part of the innovation ecosystem, if you want to be part of delivering solutions, if you want to have better access to solutions, you invest in better IP. But what happened instead was countries decided not to implement the TRIPS agreement. Instead, they just sort of criticized the system as forcing them to make payments to companies in wealthy countries. That's a tragedy. We need to go back and fix that problem from the foundations. The people who were for opening up the IP framed it in the context of, we need access to this technology because we need access to the vaccines. Yet, about a week before the decision took place, I was speaking and presenting at the Pharmaceutical Distributors Conference in Berlin, and everyone was saying, look, we got 20 million, 30 million doses of mRNA here that we've been trying to offer to Africa. We've been trying to offer to Latin America. Nobody wants it. So if it wasn't really about access, what was it about? It's about populism. It's about stigmatizing and scapegoating the big wealthy private sector in the, in the developed world and saying, we've got these problems at home. You know, our healthcare system is inadequate to the challenge of a pandemic. We're not able to distribute and administer vaccines on an emergency basis. But we can't say that politically. So what do you do instead? You, you point at Pfizer's and the Moderna's and you say, well, it's their fault. They're hoarding the intellectual property. What we know is that access is really tied to a few things, right? In the innovative and creative sectors, it's tied to strong IP rules that help people to do business together on a contractual basis. It's about the rule of law environment that makes those rights meaningful, gives companies the confidence to enter a market, to enter into agreements with stakeholders in that market. It's about pure capabilities. And, you know, every country in the world has some, every person in the world has innovative capacity. And we always say innovation is everywhere. You know, like innovation is sort of that, one of those latent human characteristics that we all are, are desiring of and capable of innovation. But it takes a system, it takes an environment to allow you to innovate successfully on a sustainable basis and to really achieve transformative innovation, then you need a really strong IP rights and rule of law environment. And what we've seen in this pandemic is that the countries where that environment was present, they're able to be part of the collaborations, the partnerships through the supply chains, through you know, research collaborations that brought vaccines and therapies to market in miraculous record time. Eight uh, months, nine months. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, go back to early 2020, and how many years did we think it was going to take? It took nine months. Many stakeholders around the world were not able to be part of the solution. They found themselves on the sidelines waiting 
to be the recipients of solutions instead. Why? Because they hadn't done that work of implementing the TRIPS agreement and similar standards that would enable them to be part of the ecosystem. Far from waiving IP rights, we should be helping countries to build the infrastructure. This is the time to go back and do that capacity building and, and even more importantly, consensus building. Once we're past some of the emotion of the pandemic, is really time to go back and re-secure that base. You know, my former employer, the Wall Street Journal, the editorial board there said, the mRNA agreement is, quote, a vehicle to raid U.S. innovation that will benefit China and set a precedent that erodes intellectual property protection, unquote. Do you agree with that? We're seeing already that the waiver that was agreed in June was only the first step. They're currently debating uh, the extension of that waiver to, to uh, therapeutics, therapeutics and diagnostics that, and medical devices, it you could name be, it. It right? could even be aspirin, technically, in the context of the way it was framed. It could be anything that would be part of the standard yeah. of care or even conceivably part of the standard of care. You know, and then that goes on. The venue is already shifting to the World Health Organization, which is even less friendly to innovators. They're negotiating uh, a pandemic treaty, which would likely incorporate... Uh, yeah, would hardwire this into it. ...legally binding instrument under international law, force countries to give up IP rights. That will happen again in the UN Forum on Climate Change. It will happen across any technology where... It's basically the slippery slope they yeah. continually talk about, but it's it's really happening in real time here. Let's get a little cheerier, <laughs> get a little happy. <laughs> okay. Moving away from you know the really bizarre decision that happened at the WTO. If we do look at the current U.S. ecosystem, going back to this updated Neller study that, that you funded for us and, and we just published in November, Neller, Robert Neller did 98 to 07. We looked at 2011 to 2020. What we saw overall was an increase of 50% in the amount of new therapies that came to market, 111 new drugs. Now, what's interesting, if you actually quantify that and look at each of those and where they originated, that bump of 111, that 50% increase, 95% of that was driven by the U.S. alone, alone. What does this say about particularly the U.S. sector and the ecosystem here and the evolution of that over the last 20 years. First of all, it shows you how high the stakes are. I mean, look at the enormous scale of innovation that we've enjoyed. And I think we can all see it in our daily lives and certainly with people we know who have suffered from conditions and diseases that were untreatable. Well, the fact we got a COVID vaccine in nine months. Exactly, exactly. But but across so many different forms of cancer or HIV, the advances that we've made since that first Neller study are phenomenal. And yet, policymakers in the United States around the world are looking at this and saying the system is broken. You have to wonder <laughs> what, what, what they're thinking. Um, you know, the, the payment system might be broken. That's separate. We really need to separate it from the innovation. It's also important to look at the factors that exist in the United States to a degree that they may not elsewhere in the world. And, and Dwayne, you've, you've studied the uh, migration of promising biotech pipeline products from Europe to the United States, you know, good work being done by uh, European startups, and then inevitably coming to the United States to find capital. Why? Because we have the, the highest functioning capital markets in the world. We have the strong respect for IP rights and the rule of law, even if that may be under duress to a degree right now. But, you know, we've had that mix of, of factors that's enabled the broader market to say, Biotech is a good place for us to be, you know, even though we know that 90% of the medicines that are tested will never make it to market, never 
provide a return on investment that the factors in place here will allow us to recoup the investment on the ones that do succeed. That's been behind this uh, phenomenal success. And, you know, let's not screw it up. Europe from 1970-1980 originated between 55 and 60% of global pharmaceutical products. That's now down to 20%. The U.S. is now 60 plus percent. It's been a complete flip. The U.S. is so dominant. Are we just getting spoiled? Maybe it's just human nature to start taking things for granted when they're readily available and forgetting how much work was done to enable them to flourish in the first place. I think to your point, that's what happened in Europe and and that's what seems to be happening here. You see it not just in terms of price controls or margin rights on patents, but you also see it in... um, Well, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Absolutely, right? We forget. We forget what we did to be in the position we're in today. One of the amazing things is how much your study showed this, not just where new medicines originate, but the path that they follow to get to market is the transferability of intellectual property rights that allows companies to work together. Because, you know, we can't do business together, you know, you and me, for instance, unless we both have a common understanding of what we're each bringing to the table. And we have some framework to agree on a value, you know, so Dwayne's bringing these capabilities, we're going to value that at X. Patrick's contributing this. And Some we'll, of questionable value. We'll go, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, well, and then that's the point, right? Our, our assessments don't have to be accurate. Sure. They just have to be agreed to and enforceable. You know, the contracts and the rights that underpin them have to be trustworthy. And in that high trust environment, we can do business together. We don't even have to really know each other. We just have to trust, know and trust the rules that are in place. In too many countries around the world, the rules are fungible or the rules are... Uh, and we're going down that path, it would appear, particularly yeah. if we start talking marching. Exactly. Marching, price controls. I mean, you're not marching in or capping the prices of products maybe new to the market, but they've been decades in development. Oh, God, People yes. have invested in them hundreds for years and, and hundreds years. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of hundreds dollars. Hundreds and billions of dollars. Yes. And, and those investments have been made on the basis of the rules. And when we talk about rule of law, you know, at the U.S. Chamber, this is something I think is just incredibly important to the business community. We speak in terms of transparency, predictability, but also the philosophical stability of governance that government will not go back and change the rules arbitrarily or retrospectively that regulation and governance follows a smooth trajectory. Now, you know, is there going to be changes? Of course there are, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't reverse what people have relied upon in the past. Because when you do that, then you have a, an environment of complete legal uncertainty. Companies can't look out 10 years and say, I'm willing to take a risk in something that won't come to market for for another decade. And another fine line point that we discovered in the research, everyone knows that, yes, the U.S. has this very vibrant, small biotech community that is, you know, 102 of 255 came from these small biotechs. Great. That's the where a good chunk of the research is being done, these small companies. But what was fascinating, of those 91 assets that were produced by big companies, roughly a third if they were small indications or orphan drugs would get spun down and out licensed to smaller companies because the big companies need a certain amount of scale. Now that had never been identified in research before that there's actually roughly, we saw 30 patents literally drop down, 30 innovations move down into small companies. Now that's interesting because what that says is the U.S. is very good 
at utilizing the assets and creating scale. We're very good at allocating those resources to where they're going to be most best applied. And there's no other dynamism like that in any other market. You know, we like to use the word ecosystem, right? You hear it all the time, but it tends to be very superficial. But really think about what an ecosystem is, what it looks like, and all of the movement and interchange that happens within it. We need all of it. We need the specialization. We need the scale. We need the early stage uh, investment and basic knowledge. We need the ability to manage supply chains and create you know, manufacturing capabilities. We need the legal expertise to do business with private equity and venture capital and public markets. You know, you need all of that. And what you find is the small biotechs can't survive without the big biotech. So, you know, when you see what's happening uh, at the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States, for instance, you know, and their attacks on mergers and acquisitions, their attack on so-called big business of whatever industry flavor is so misguided because that specialization, that diversity that you get at the startup level really can't thrive without the, the big players who invest, who do business, who share capabilities and, and share a common workforce, right? It's all, there's only one workforce and it, it moves around and, and you see real benefit from that. If we look at the sort of devolution that we've seen in Europe, where there's been an exodus of innovation, where Europe's now gone from 60 to only producing roughly 20%. What's intriguing is last year, 2021, China equaled the United States in early stage venture-backed startups of 91. What happens if we start doing the same thing that Europe did here? Are you concerned that we're going to see movements to China since we're already seeing it? I'm always concerned uh, about losing our competitive advantage in the United States. Uh, And, you know, China is obviously a major competitor, a major player in any market just by dint of its scale, its capabilities. I do think we have a special sauce here in the United States that really enables our success in a way that the Chinese political system doesn't seem willing to embrace. As we've seen over the last 18 months. Exactly. That could continue to be a major advantage. But to our earlier point, you can't take any of it for granted. Innovation is not inevitable. Leadership is not inevitable. It has to be continually reinvested in. We have to continue to examine the factors that make it possible. The real danger here is own goals. Patrick, it's always a pleasure collaborating with you folks at the U.S. Chamber. Thank you very much for your time. It's always great to see you. Thank that you. was fun, Dwayne. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your new research. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.